Well, as you were listening to the scripture reading, you might have been thinking to yourself, Pastor Ian, uh, that's an Easter passage. Uh, You just said we're still in Christmas. And uh, yes, yes, uh, you would be right in a number of different ways. And actually, uh, before I go any further, I'd like to encourage you, if, if you... Uh, have brought your Bible with you today, which I encourage you to do when you come to church, or if maybe you want to grab one of the Bibles out of the rack in front of you and and open up to Mark chapter 14, where we're going to be. It's a good habit to be in to make sure that I'm actually telling you what the Bible says, number one, but also because uh, the power is in God's word more than any person's word. So I just want to encourage you to be taking a look at the text yourself. If you're looking for it, uh, if you're not super comfortable using your Bible, good news, there is a table of contents in the beginning. Uh, If you know how to find the New Testament, uh, the Gospel of Mark is the second book in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This passage that we're taking a look at this morning, it's actually pretty significant because those first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Those are all Gospels that tell the story of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. The storybooks about Jesus. And each of these four books takes sometimes a little bit of a different look at Jesus' life, sometimes a drastically different look at Jesus' life. Matthew, Mark, and Luke tend to take a similar sort of approach, and then John takes a very different approach, all telling uh, about the same Jesus, all giving us reliable information about Jesus, but uh, looking at it sometimes from a different perspective. Out of all of the stories that we find in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are very few that are repeated in every single gospel, in all four of those gospels. This is one of them. Isn't it interesting how Jesus says uh, near the end of this passage, uh, truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told. And all four gospel writers said, yeah, we're going to tell about that. Well, how is this a Christmas story? Well, uh, over the last couple years, uh, the world has changed quite a bit, hasn't it? One of the things that's changed is how we gather together. Uh, If you look at the back of the sanctuary, you will see there's a big video camera uh, standing on the divider between the sanctuary and uh, the narthex or foyer or whatever the heck that place is called in the back. And we've got new computers in the back so that we can live stream, so that people can tune in online. Because what has become a big part of our lives over the last two years? Zoom. Has anyone here used Zoom at all over the last two years? Have any of you, maybe your job has migrated to Zoom or to something like Zoom for a significant portion of the last two years? Does anyone love that change, by the way? Now, that's surprising. (laughs) I didn't think anyone would raise their hand, but somebody did. Yeah, sometimes at work you like it. Okay, so... uh, yeah, we, we have not been able to gather as freely over the last two years. Uh, whatever we think of that, it's just been a fact of life. And we've had to go online in order to see each other. And it's not the same, is it? It's not the same. In my circles where pastors are talking to each other, the question is surfaced of, do you think things will, will ever, will, will online church become a more important part of our ministry, will it even become the most important part of our ministry as the church? 
And for those of you who are out there shaking your heads, you've come to the same conclusion that I have. No, uh, it won't. But that's been a legitimate question. I mean, if you followed the pandemic at all, uh, it's like every time things seem to be getting better, there's another curveball, right? Omicron now. And people are saying, how's that going to change? Are we going to have to go back to doing all of those different things? This is not a commentary on Omicron and what we should do, but just reminding us of the fact that we keep asking, how are we going to relate to each other in these days? Are we going to be Zoom people for the rest of our lives in one way or another? How big a part of our lives is that going to become? And one of the things that is so great about Christmas is I think it it reminds us that, no, we cannot be Zoom people all of our lives long. Because when God said, I want to tell people more clearly than I ever have before who I am. When God said, I am finally going to fulfill all of my promises to my people, he didn't make a Zoom call, did he? But he came as a human being, just like you and I. John 1.14, and the Word and the Son of God became flesh and he, he made his dwelling among us. That, that verse is so interesting that where it says he made his dwelling, it's really he tented among us. He tabernacled among us. He set up camp in our midst, just like he did, only more so when the people of Israel were leaving Egypt and were in the wilderness and God lived with them as a, a pillar of fire by night and a cloud of smoke By day, he tabernacled with us. But Christmas, of course, is even even more so than God's tabernacling with his people in the wilderness. It was more than just fire in the night and smoke in the day. And uh, John chapter 1, which we've been studying the last several weeks, that makes it so clear. No one has ever seen God. Do you ever think, wouldn't it be neat if God came in all of his power and his glory and we saw him that way? Wouldn't that reveal to us more of whom God is? You ever think that? If, if only the heavens would split open and we would get that view right into heaven, then we'd really know God. But what the Bible tells us is that actually The way we'll know God best is when he becomes a human being, when he becomes Jesus Christ. Because God will always be far away while we only see him in heaven. Because number one, we're not in heaven. It doesn't matter if the clouds split and we look up into the sky and we're like, oh, look, there's heaven. It's still far away, right? You can't get there. But it's also because, as we discussed a week or two ago, Unless God actually translates himself somehow, we will never understand him. He's too big. Uh, let's, let me ask you, if you ever went, maybe you've been mountain climbing before in the past. When I was a kid, uh, I think I was eight years old, I climbed Mount St. Helens with my dad. And that's, first of all, not a super impressive accomplishment because it's only like 8,800 8, feet high and it's just like a hill. You just keep climbing the hill until you get to the top. It's not technical. It's an easy climb. But one of the things that was amazing to me as I was going up is I kept saying, oh, we're almost to the top. And then we would, you know, we would get to that thing that looked like the top. And we're like, this thing goes on forever. 
It was a false summit. In a way, in order to really see and understand Mount St. Helens, you couldn't be on it. Because if you were on it, you wouldn't be able to see enough of it to understand where you were. If you were looking from, you know, 10 or 20 miles away, you'd say, oh, yeah, look, it looks like this. It's got that big crater and the lava dome in the middle of it. But when you're climbing the mountain, you can only see maybe 100 feet ahead, 200 feet ahead, 500 feet ahead, because the mountain kept doing this all the way up. See, that's kind of what it's like with God. The closer that we get to him, in his divinity, the less we'll see in some sense. That's why sometimes we, we get confused. We start saying to each other like, oh, God's so full of grace and mercy. You know, he's forgiven me. He's done all these amazing things. And then other people are saying, oh, God's so holy and the weight of his holiness is pressing me down into the ground because I'm not holy. Because we only take in just one or two things about God at a time, don't we? How many of us are really successful at holding together God's grace and holiness at the same time? Where we're going like, yes, God forgives me, but he's so holy and that's so good. And No, I mean, we really just usually do one at a time. God is full of grace and he forgives me. God is holy and I am totally in trouble. It's so hard to hold those two things together. But we can do it in Jesus. Because Jesus is a person like you and me. He's, he's a human being like you and me. My mom used to tell me something more often than I'd really like to admit. Ian, I love you. But I don't like you very much right now. Because of some trouble that I had caused or gotten into. You see, I'm looking at you, Matt. I know you know what that's like, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you know what? You learn how to live with that with people, don't you? Yeah, it's uncomfortable right now because I just messed up or you just messed up. But we've been here before. We can do this together. We can figure this out. I mean, sometimes it doesn't always feel like it'll be easy or maybe even possible. But there's a sense in which, yeah, we, we understand how I know how you work because you're human like me. When God becomes human like me, I can start to understand him better, too. No one has ever seen God, the Gospel of John says, but the one and only God, who is so close to the Father, he has explained him. Again, speaking of Jesus. So now we come to this passage in Mark chapter 14. And I'm not going to tell you everything that's here. I just want to focus on a couple of things, and they're not even necessarily the core of the passage, but they illustrate this well for me. First of all, it says, now the Passover, well, let's skip, while Jesus was in Bethany, verse 3, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper. In the home of Simon the leper. Now, first of all, you need to know about when the Bible talks about leprosy, it's not always talking about Hansen's disease. That's what we call leprosy usually today. Uh, it's a disease in which your skin basically starts falling apart. Uh, and because we have antibiotics and things like that, I think we can, treatments exist. They didn't exist back in Jesus' day. 
But leprosy wasn't just Hansen's disease. Leprosy was basically any disease of the skin. And if you develop something that the Bible calls leprosy, you become unclean. And that means that you have to go out of your town. You have to stay away from all of the non-leper people until you get better. Now, sometimes you might get better in over a short period of time. Other times you might never get better. If you were a leper, it could be a life sentence of isolation and impurity. And that impurity separates you not only from relationship, but also from worship. You can't go to the temple and offer the sacrifices. You can't join with the big holiday celebrations, with the Day of Atonement. You can't go be with your family on Christmas Day. You are alone, you are isolated, and you are, in some sense, separated from God because you are unclean. Lepers, as a matter of fact, the book of Leviticus gives specific instructions for what they're supposed to do. Lepers couldn't be around any people without yelling at the top of their lungs, unclean, unclean, so that no one would get near them. Because what would happen if you, became, if you got near a leper, especially if you touched a leper, is you became unclean as well. Now, I don't think, I think in the past, a lot of interpreters thought that uh, this was all about not spreading leprosy in the community. But the more we read this, the more we study this, the more we think that the reason you, could, you had to yell unclean and keep everyone away from you is not so that you wouldn't spread your disease, but so you wouldn't spread your uncleanness among God's clean people. That's what this is really about at the end of the day. It's not about how contagious the disease is, but how closely you can approach others and approach God and what danger you are to the community in their relationship with God. There's a lot more maybe that needs to be said about that, but I, I, I can't do it this morning. Let me just say uh, that when it comes to Jesus reclining at table in the home of Simon the leper, this is an astounding thing. It's unbelievable. If there was ever someone you would make a Zoom call to, it was the man with leprosy. But that's not what Jesus does. Now, again, a lot of interpreters think that Simon's probably been healed of his leprosy somehow at this point. Maybe the majority of interpreters think that. I, I don't. I think Simon probably is still leprous in some sense. Or maybe Jesus has come into his home to heal him. And so Jesus is taking on this risk of becoming unclean. I mean, you think about it. Jesus, maybe he's like, you know, I'm not really going to be made unclean by this guy. But think about the social implications for Jesus. Everyone else would consider him unclean. You think that, you know, if, if you are, uh, say, you're a pastor, like me, maybe, and you have to preach on Sunday. On Saturday, do you go to the infectious disease ward at the hospital and visit people? No. Because, uh, first of all, you don't want to infect anyone else. And secondly, because if anyone finds out that yesterday you were in the infectious disease ward and now you're at the hospital or at the church preaching, like, people either won't come, they'll leave, or they'll get angry. 
Because right? did you know you put me in danger by doing that? Right? But Jesus is not concerned about any of these things. Why? Why? It's because the power of Jesus to make people clean is stronger than the power of anything to make unclean. Yet that the power of Jesus to come and restore people and make them whole and make them clean and make them acceptable is stronger than any power to pollute a person. That meant a lot in the first century when being clean or unclean, ritually, ceremonially clean or unclean was such a big deal. But you know what it means a lot to us today too, doesn't it? See, Jesus comes in person, taking on our flesh to make it clean. Do you ever feel like, as long as I live this life, I will never stop struggling with this. I will never be free of this disability. I will never be acceptable to the people that I really want to accept me. And then stop and think about the fact that Jesus has taken on your same life. The Son of God has taken on your same life. And it's within his power to make you clean. Despite whatever you carry, whatever disability, whatever impurity, whatever sin, it's within the power of Jesus to make you clean because he has come. Think about psychologically what this does for us. I think that we still expect that God will, will stay out in heaven away from the, the broken nature of this world, away from the struggle of this world. You know, this week after working hard throughout Christmas, my family and I were going to the coast for a few days because we're going to get relief from, from being out of the busyness and out of the responsibility and being somewhere where we don't really have those same responsibilities, right? We're going to get out of the situation to feel better about ourselves in some way. Now I feel really guilty for going on vacation. But <laughs> Jesus does the opposite. God does the opposite. God doesn't say, oh, that's such a yucky place. That looks terrible. God schedules his vacation in Syria in the middle of the Civil War. God schedules his time with you in the hospital room. You know, when, when I do hospital visits, that's always a good thing to do, but it makes me a little bit uncomfortable too because I don't really like all of the, the tubes and the breathing stuff. And, and you know, my, I, there's some hypochondria, or I don't know what it's called when just all that hospital stuff makes you uncomfortable. There's some of that in my family and there's some of that in me too. It's not the place that I, I really want to go except to see you guys and be with you guys. And God says, that's where I'm going to go not because I have a responsibility there, but because the people that I love are there and I'm not going to leave them alone. I'm going to be physically, personally present. This morning, uh, maybe there are ways that we feel unclean. That's what we've been talking about a bit. Maybe you see, my sin is so much. 
you know, the, the wrong things I've done or so much. Maybe I, I'm not talented or gifted enough. I feel like I can't help or contribute, and I'm just taking and not, uh, not giving back anything, and that's an uncomfortable place to be. Or maybe we're thinking something more along the lines of, I'm not sure if I buy all, are these people going to make me unclean? No, because God is here. Not because of who we are, but because of who he is, because he schedules his vacation in Syria, because he doesn't make a Zoom call. He comes in person to make the unclean clean. But there's a flip side to this as well, which we need to consider. Uh, who do we consider to be unclean? You know, I don't really want them around me. I don't really want them coming to my church. And it sneaks in in all of these dumb and subtle ways. I don't know if that person's really dressed right to be here. And we, by the way, churches do this in both directions. Yeah, we're a suit and tie kind of church. The ladies ought to be wearing a dress. If you're not like that, like, you'll be welcome for a couple of weeks, but we expect you to get on board or you're unclean. There's a flip side to that. You know, uh, Suits and ties and dresses, those are old you know, gender stereotypes and, and all sorts of things. Uh, we're, we are a, a, a holy jeans, <laughs> like the play on words there, a holy jeans and graphic t-shirt kind of bunch. And if you don't wear those sorts of clothes, you know, you're, you're kind of unclean. We expect you to adapt and become like that. Or maybe it's something more along the lines of uh, we expect a, a minimum gift in the offering plate every week. If you can't make that, we don't think you're clean. You don't belong here. Or maybe there's a, a sense of we expect a minimum time commitment in this place. And if you're not given that much time, then you, you're kind of second class. Like, we'll, we'll find a special place in the church for you to sit with the rest of the second class people. There are all these things where we judge clean and unclean, aren't there? And the fact that Jesus doesn't make a Zoom call, that he comes in person and says, no, it's not how this is supposed to work. I don't care how dirty the people are. They're mine. And I make them clean. On my terms and not on yours. So first of all, if Jesus comes to us in person, it tells us that there is no one who can't be made clean. We can all be made clean. And the presence of Jesus is what does that. Not anything else that we do or bring or offer. Secondly, we better get to uh, this woman who this whole passage is actually about in one way or another. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar, a very expensive perfume made of pure nard, she broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. And some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. That logic makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? This, you know, that, something that expensive could probably feed everyone in that town for a period of time. Everyone. It could have made an enormous difference in the social, social situation of the people around there. Part of us agrees. 
What a waste. You know, it's, it's here for a few moments, and then it's gone. Jesus smells good for a little bit before he goes back to smelling like the rest of us. And that's that. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want. I like that. It's really easy to be indignant about somebody else's use of their money, isn't it? As a matter of fact, societally, we're really good about that in these days. Not just societally, you and I as well. Why did they buy that thing? What a waste. Why did they spend money on that? Can they really afford a new car? Why are we asking those questions? Can they really afford that? I don't know. I don't have their checkbook. Neither do you. Stop it. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want. This isn't stopping you from making a difference. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. And truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Some of this applies directly to us, and some of it doesn't. Jesus is not physically here. We cannot pour perfume on him now. But I think part of what this is telling us is that when we spend our resources on worship, on just telling Jesus how great he is, that's a good use of those resources. It's not the only use. You know, and it doesn't mean we should fill up our churches with fancy stuff, because sometimes that's just about us, right? One of the things I, I often think is, wouldn't it be neat if our church had stained glass windows? That'd be cool, wouldn't it? It might even be worshipful in some sense. But we balance the need for, hey, what's our ministry in the community look like? What's our ministry to the body of Christ in this place look like? And will stained glass windows help us achieve that mission or not? I see some of you shaking your heads, and I'm, I am disappointed. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> but yeah, those, these are things that we actually weigh. Right? It is good to spend our resources on things that are worship directly, that are just a way of expressing, God, you are so good. And we're so glad that we know you. That's part of what this story tells us. Uh, but, of course, we remember the story doesn't apply directly. Jesus is not here physically. And so part of what we remember is that Jesus said to his disciples, hey, if you just give a glass of water to someone who is thirsty, you have loved me. That's the primary way that I think we actually worship and love our God in these days, is by serving his people. But what we can take away, you know, Jesus our goal, our end in life is not to build kingdoms where we've managed to eradicate poverty. It's not to build a kingdom where we've eradicated poverty. But it's to build a kingdom where we, well, not even, we're not even really building it. That's God's work and we are just cooperating. But it's to cooperate with God's work to build a kingdom in which Jesus is worshipped. And then the rest will follow. 
Because people who worship Jesus love the poor. Because they recognize that God came to make everyone clean. And to let everyone know that you are the person that I come to. The leper, the poor person, whoever. If we really give our worship to Jesus, the rest of this is going to make sense as well. And we can worship Jesus because we have seen him physically. I know you and I, we haven't actually seen him physically. But we have these eyewitness accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that tell us this is what it looks like when God comes to earth. And now we know God better because of that. He eats with the lepers. He accepts the worship of the people. And he sends us out to live like him. So, hopefully I've brought a little Christmas to your Easter, or maybe a little Easter to your Christmas today as we look at God's word.